Welcome to the Miskatonic Region, a newbie-friendly Mage the Awakening podcast set in a world that is an homage to the works of H.P. Lovecraft. This is Chapter 1, Part 2, The Morpheus Prelude, featuring Evil Squeegee as the storyteller and M.R.N. Dubois as Morpheus. Denied anything ardently desired, the individual or state will argue and parlay just so long, then if the impelling motive be sufficiently great, will cast aside every rule and break down every acquired inhibition, plunging viciously after the object wished, all the more fantastically savage because of previous repression. H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, so Morpheus! That's me. I want to hear about your character's childhood life. Um, I want to know everything you know about your character's upbringing. This is important. I realize like a lot of this is not isn't necessarily like compelling narrative, but I use and abuse these things and twist them against you over the course of the campaign. So I want you to arm me with all of the knives you can possibly give me. Yeah. Well, his I would say his childhood was overall good but it had sort of a unpredictable cycle where he would be left to his own devices for long periods of time and then suddenly intruded on by like family needs or attention that seemed sort of overwhelming not not necessarily like in a bad way just like didn't see that coming and it freaked him out okay yeah like he was he wasn't ready for it um, okay, so tell me about his family. Like, who did he grow up with? Well, I know for sure that he had a mother and a father. Has a mother and a father. They're still alive. His his father was a um, an employee at a firm whose name we have not decided. <laughs> okay, what 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 was the firm? What sort of business did we settle on? I believe it was a shipping company. It was a shipping company that like works with old museums and stuff, as I recall. Sure. Okay. Well, if it's a shipping company, they probably work with old museums and everybody else that wants something moved from point A to point B. Well, yeah, but it's the museums that are the important parts so that I can do spooky Lovecraft things when I need to. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. Okay, so um, he worked. He so his father worked for the shipping company. Yep. Uh, what about his mother? Uh, his mom. I imagine that she was she was probably a teacher. Okay. Right? What kind of teacher? Like what 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 grade level was she like a university teacher, like a professor or was she like a high school no, teacher? No, I would or... say probably like second grade small children. Okay, like a, like a, like yeah, a, a second grade teacher. Okay. Um yeah. and you also have a sister, don't you? I yes, I do. Uh tell me about your sister. Well, I since swear this you... is actually a character backstory and not a therapy session. Since Tell you, me about your mother. Uh, since you sprung the sister on me, and I don't remember her at you, all. You totally remember her. Okay, here, I'll, you know what, fuck it, I'll I was do agreeing it. in order to roll along with it, because I was like, a sister sounds great. Let's have a sister. Your sister was the one that was always better than you without trying. Hmm. Yes. Uh, do you sense. actively remember that, or are you just rolling with it again? I'm rolling it with it again. Um... <laughs> We spent like a half an hour talking about this goddamn sibling. Did we? Yes, I, I know because she... I got plot ideas that involved your fucking sibling. Oh, 
Well, I'm sorry that I can't remember everything that's exciting about my life, my imaginary life. Okay, so anyways, uh, now I that I've established to... that, you can go ahead I and describe more... anything else you want to your sister, or we can just move on because you're an asshole, I guess. Who doesn't... Uh, I need more notes from you, that's what I'm saying. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> so his sister is someone who is apparently better than him at everything. I forget if she's older or younger. I think you were the younger sibling in this instance. Hmm. I think. No, I think I was the older one and getting surpassed by my siblings. Oh, okay, that'll do. Yeah, I think that would feed his sense of his dread of incompetence. Okay, I like it. I dig it. Okay, so his and his, his he was raised in like a healthy family. Like he had a, he had a, he had a good childhood. Mostly healthy, but he was left on his own a lot because you know mom is busy at school or grading papers. Dad is doing truck stuff he's a career man yeah exactly okay so i'm i'm picturing the characters being somewhere around 18 19 20 years old mm-hmm. um unless you wanted to play your character older i just can't go any younger than that um yeah i think he would be a little bit older okay so about, about because how he, old... he managed well, he, I, I would say 25 or 26 25, just on 26. account of the fact that he managed to probably complete a college education and get a professional job where he was able to um, get to the point where he couldn't succeed any further, right? Yep, okay. Um, so what was it like transitioning out of his childhood through his teen years into his uh, into his adult life? <clears throat> uh, like, what happened? Let's say, uh, what was it that his sister did that outshined him during those years? I just need, like, one thing. Um, well, if she's the younger one. You know what? She was named MVP of her soccer team. Okay. So she was better at sport. She was much better at sport. Okay, uh, and then your relationship with your father, if I recall, this is about the time in your life where, like, you would have shifted from being the son to, like, being your dad's friend? Yeah, and your, and your like, his dad's friend. always been a source of, like, his, it, maybe he's not always available because he's busy with the work, but mm-hmm. he's always been um, kind of a bedrock existence, something you can rely on. Okay, uh, and, and your mother... Tell me about your mother, Matt. This is the third time I've cracked this joke. <laughs> well, I would say that she's pretty similar, probably more emotionally engaged with the kids, with just because, you know, she probably did more of the raising and whatnot. So. Okay, yeah, because he was always working. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and he winds up getting a job at this shipping company that his dad works for. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and how does that go for him? Uh, it goes fine until it doesn't. <laughs> okay, so what? Uh, before we actually get to the to the full blown crisis, like the the lead into this crisis, what was it like? It was probably fine. He probably had some experience driving trucks for a while before moving into like the dispatch office, and then. And that's know, where it started to like. That's where he was no longer a good fit. Well, he might have still been a good fit with communication, but when it came to, like, coordinating driver's schedules and stuff like that, he started 
like when it was no longer just like managing communications between the company and the drivers, but it was also like managing where the drivers were and what they were doing and stuff that it started to become too much so over the over the period of time where it's starting to weigh on him that this is that that he can't and it it doesn't work for him uh he starts listening to these radio shows to like to cope so uh so tell me about what his experience is like building into more and more of this radio show as he has also the building stress of his life now as remember there was a specific female uh host that was running the show and this is this is also where he picks his shadow name up isn't it like he he identifies as you seriously don't remember we i am never talking about characters with you when you were drinking again you don't give me notes <laughs> i don't remember and if there i was, was drinking the, then i don't remember the, even the woman who runs the radio show that he's calling into uh is somebody that he winds up feeling very safe around and like he can open up to her and that's part of what what brings him into the show as often as right. he starts going in. And then later on, for reasons I will explain, which will apparently be a surprise to you, I will explain why that's important. It, isn't that what point. you want for your players to be? I guess, surprised. yeah. I mean, like I can't really complain. <laughs> All right. So stress from job builds into the radio show, and he calls in, and he calls in, and he calls in. Yep. And then it happens. I suppose at the same time he was also building an interest in like occult conspiracies in the first place like aliens are real bigfoot can be found in the cracks of the grand canyon kind of thing right um so what because he had to have some kind of material that was worthy of calling into the radio show to talk about right right yep and he and in order he had to call in that was so he had to find things to call in he needed someone to talk to, and he didn't want to talk about his job. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not even, like, especially not with his folks, where, like, his dad has been working in this company for so long, and, like... Yeah, his dad is retired at this point. You know, full pension and everything, like, that, yeah. So, the company's treated him really well, and it would... I think it would be misunderstood why... Well, it would just be just... It's not like his parents wouldn't love him. It's just it would also be disappointing. Yeah, and he, like he doesn't want to do that to his folks, and he doesn't want to deal with that whole situation, no. um, especially since that would run the risk of being seen as. That not is true, good enough, though. Like that. That is true, though. This is also the point where he develops his shadow name in the first place because yeah, he has he to was... have a call in title. He can't use his name. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's one particular night where it gets too much. Can you describe that to me? Like the the, the, the the night of the meltdown. Set me up in this meltdown so that I can start running this scene for you here. It would have to be more overwhelming circumstances than normal. So I imagine that it's something along the lines of they don't have enough drivers. There's been an accident or two, all of these different things that need to be coordinated, piling up on top of each other at once. On top of terrible weather. And of course, terrible weather. Terrible weather. Oh, so, the worst. a nor'easter swinging through town, because yep. let us not forget, you are you are in the Miskatonic region, which is just uh, just off to the side there of Essex County in Massachusetts. Yeah, I'm. I'm specifically remembering a, a nor'easter that had a bit of hurricane in it in the middle of November during soccer season. 
Okay, so it's a really, really intense storm. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, uh, you are starting to feel really desperate for the, the safe place of the show. Like, that's where you turn to cope with all of the stress and the strain. Of course. You know, and yet I also I have no way of... Uh... I, I can't turn to that right now. There's so much work that needs. There's to There's so much work that attention. needs to be done, and uh, and it's and, no. You want to talk to Naomi. You want to escape and 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 talk about the weirdness that is out there that isn't this weird logistics problem you have. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it just it hits too hard. It's too much. The storm causes. You're already in a tough spot with all the work stuff, and the storm just breaks it all on top of that. And you snap. You have to call in. The power goes out. The power goes out. In the office. In the office. You you grab your phone and you go, there's no signal. Yep. The storm is interfering with your ability to call in even when you can't be doing your job. So you, what are you going to do, sit there and be useless? No. You climb into your car in an absolute mind-fucked panic. And you brave the weather. But as you're driving, you have to keep your eyes on the road, but you start to see the, the thunderclouds overhead. They hide and mask ineffectually a deep and sinister orange luminescence just beneath their surface. And when lightning strikes, and oh, does it strike, that lightning is a vivid green, sometimes flickering, leaving scents and colors in the air behind itself that you have, in your mortal experience, no means of truly processing. Nonetheless, you press on and push that car to its limits. The wind has started to hurl objects, chairs, wood, garbage bags newspapers a body through the air that last one's a little unsettling and as you uh, as you kind of gun down the road you can see in the flashes of lightning and the, the stark sudden strobes of contrast the tower. The iron tower. The radio tower. But sitting, crawling all over this tower, hanging off the rungs like beasts climbing a tree and lounging, letting huge muscular arms dangle them from rungs, are gargoyles. Grotesque and horrid things that simply cause you discomfort to look at their silhouettes their hellish and alien shapes you knew this was going to happen you tried to tell them Naomi is in that station right now you have to go you gun it directly towards the tower, towards the gargoyle, towards the lair of the beast, as you are soon to find out. You come to a screeching halt, and you get out of your chariot, and you approach 
the large gates that stand between you and this godforsaken, horrible, abandoned building. The gargoyles look down at you with sneers etched on their shapeless black faces. And you press onward. You push in. The only way you will ever find the solace you need is to tell Naomi about what truly is. Naomi has to be here. You tried to warn them. You find yourself in a maze inside the building. Stone dungeon walls that drip with moisture that shouldn't be are illuminated by flickering reflections of torchlight. Though you can't see any of the torches, it's always from around a corner or from in the room next door, but never actually there. What is it that you go looking for here, first and foremost? Uh, well, if it's truly to warn them, I would be looking for Naomi, who presumably is in one of the studio booths. Tell me something that your character knows that Morpheus knows about Naomi. What would I know about Naomi? I think we would know about... Oh, she probably talks about her kid. Actually, I'm going to change this up. Not a daughter. She has a niece. That niece's name is Sam. I uh, feel like the gears in your head are turning right oh, now. Oh, they are very turning right now. Um, and you see somebody you assume to be Sam. Uh, you see somebody that you assume to be Sam just rounding the corner up ahead in the hallway, headed towards uh, what you assume is the broadcasting booths, because in the dungeon castle wall, like mounted there with frayed wires and a hungry red sign that says on air, but it's flickering because it doesn't have enough power. And then it blinks out and dies a tragic death, even as you see Sam round the bend. You follow. And though Sam doesn't turn around to acknowledge you, her blonde hair, her, you know, the sneakers that, like, flicker and flash, right? Mm. She doesn't know you're there, nor does she seem to know where she's going, but she keeps turning every time you come almost within reach. Maybe you call out to her, she doesn't respond. And you follow her through the maze, and then you will find yourself standing in front of a stairwell that leads down. There is a portcullis that is closed in front of you. It's a dead end, and Sam is nowhere to be seen but you can hear the rattling and dragging of chains and the moaning of damned souls emanating and echoing up the empty stone stairwell that lies on the other side of that portcullis. The wires from the dead sign run along the curved wall just out of sight. How do you get past the portcullis? 
there's either a catch, some kind of mechanism to open it, or brute force. So I would look for the mechanism first and use brute force second. Not too far from the portcullis, you will find a crank that has a heavy, thick, rusted chain that runs up the side of the doorway and over and then into the wall. And you can start to crank it one after the other. Time and time and cycle over cycle. Every time you crank, it lifts the portcullis a mere few inches. And by the time you are done, you are out of breath. You are drenched in sweat. And you can proceed down the stairwell. And as you do, you see picture after picture after picture of businessman after businessman after businessman mounted on the wall in elaborate paintings to their success, all of them working for your company, proudly bearing the logo, proudly displaying for you that they could succeed where you could not. Look at them in their success and their retirements, just like your father. You can't get to the bottom of this stairwell without almost slipping away and losing yourself in the drowning, horrible experience of revelation that you can't. That you have found something you can't. Something so simple as to just do a job. You don't have time to, thankfully, for yet again, as she has done time and time before, Naomi jars you out of your own self-flagellating thoughts. Except for this time, it's because she's chained and gagged in a chair, surrounded by old, dead, cobweb-riddled radio equipment. A microphone dangles mockingly in front of her face while she's gagged with, uh, with, with torn burlap and locked up in a, in, a, in a pile of chains that weave and tangle in and over themselves with padlocks upon padlocks. And sitting next to her on the counter is an imp in a shirt and tie. And he looks at you, and he was in the middle of sneering at her, wordlessly mocking her inability to speak. But as you come down and you see her and that experience witnessing the scene before you jars you out of your own thoughts of self, the imp turns and looks at you with his long elven ears and his thick jagged, askew nose, his missing dirty teeth and beady little eyes. Eh. What do you want? Let her go. Oh? Hero, are you? Not really. Just a fan. Oh. You like the show, do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, see, the thing is, kid, it's my show and it's not making money now, is it? And he makes that motion with his two fingers and his thumb, 
where you can see almost the coins scraping angrily against each other in his demonic grasp. So? He says, Maybe you're just doing a shit job of promoting it. That's not my end of the bargain, kid. I don't do promotions. I just come by and collect what's mine when it's due. And he'll hop off the counter and just kind of like push her aside in the rolling chair that she's chained into. And she'll like protest and kind of like clatter against the side. But the, the imp doesn't care about her anymore. He's fixated on you and you can see you don't have to be a psychologist or, or good with people to see the gears whirring behind his demonic eyes. He has a plan, and he's looking at you while he concocts it. He says, but, you know, if it's so important that I not make a vacancy, you could make the difference. I mean, you got here through the maze, the gargoyles let you in. Means you probably got the chutzpah I'm looking for, yeah? And then with a dramatic flare, he will produce a contract that bounces as it hits the ground and unrolls like a carpet towards you. And he's suddenly twirling between his fingers a small knife. This is, uh... You could work for me. We'll just count your earnings towards her share. But if you don't, I get to collect one way or the other. If I work for you, I'm going to tell them about you. I'm going to let people know so that you can't get away with this. <laughs> ah! Oh, what do you think she's been doing this whole time, kid? He whips the knife at you and it stabs into the ground right between your feet next to the contract. Right next to the dotted line. He says, Try me, kid. If you win, it's all yours. I'll reach down and pick up the knife. Won't take my eyes off him. Uh, we'll go whole hog. Just jam my hand down onto the blade. <laughs> All right. Fine. And I'll put my... And I'll yank the knife out and slam my hand down on the end of the contract. Signature enough, right? And as you sign the contract at the bottom of the Iron Tower... The imp will cackle madly, like he's already won. But you know better. Somehow. You know that his goal is to make you think you've lost so that you don't try to win. And he'll walk over to the chains and unlock them one at a time in a process that takes excruciatingly long. And finally, the last chain will hit the ground with a rattle and an iron clinking. And Naomi will reach up and rip 
the muffle off of her face. And she will look you up and down. She won't say much, and she will walk you back up the spiral staircase into the radio station. No longer a dungeon maze. No more gargoyles out the window. It is a little stormy. And she's in the middle of tilting her head and being like, I knew you liked the show, but I didn't think you were looking for employment. And it all comes crashing into you that she has no idea what just happened. She didn't see an imp. She has no idea to look for gargoyles. The on-air sign is just out of power. I mean, the whole radio station is out of power currently. So, of course, she couldn't speak. But you're sitting there holding in your hand the paperwork. You just got yourself a job. As a host for this show. You've gone from frequent caller to radio personality. Which is probably for the best because you don't have a job anymore because you walked out on it. The storm outside is not nearly as bad as it was when you came over. The whole thing seems to have been either your mind having cracked or something else. Regardless, it's not at all like you were expecting it and it settles in that you have no idea what just went on. And as you are uh, being brought out front, Naomi will give you a pat on the back, but there is this coldness to her touch that contrasts all of that like, oh, reality is back to normal, except for this freezing cold touch from her palm. And if it weren't so icy chilled, it would have been comforting. And she'll close the door and leave you to walk to your car. Uh, when you get there, there is this black girl wearing blue jeans, a rock band t-shirt, with her hair pulled back. She's looking you up and down. She doesn't say anything. She just offers her hands and she says, like, as if to offer a handshake, and she says, Hey, I'm Karina. I'm assuming you shake her hand. Curious as to what she's doing leaning on your car. And when you do, Karina is a, uh, is a Mastigos, much like yourself. And the whole package of basic information will crash into your head in an instant. She will download into your brain the basics. A world of magic, a world of, of the awakened. That there is this entire deep truth to what you have been pursuing this whole time with your fascination with the occult, but it is so far beyond what you could have ever possibly imagined. And then she will get into the car with you and have a nice conversation with you about what needs to happen next. She'll shop you around to the various orders do what needs to be done, let you choose your place in the society that surrounds the Miskatonic region. All of them here to study the mysteries of the river or the blooded cults or the realms beyond and 
the way that mortals seem to have strange interactions with them, which puts you and your new radio job in a very important position. A place you could profit from. A place that you could study from. Karina will go on to become your mentor figure. And as we've explained in uh, character sheeting here, you wind up with a free council. Um, because if the world is filled with so many occult secrets, why would you hide them in stuffy old books and traditions? People gotta know, man. Besides, you signed that fucking contract, didn't you? And if you don't succeed, do you even want to know what that imp is going to collect? This has been Chapter 1, Part 2 of The Miskatonic Region, a newbie-friendly Mage the Awakening podcast. For more of this podcast and other role-playing content, follow Evil Squeegee on Twitter at twitter.com slash evilsqueegee. Until next time, keep your wits about you, lest you too become the victim of your own success.